This is the Dogs on the Hill podcast with your host, Reeves Fisakerly. Welcome back to the Dogs on the Hill podcast. My name is Reeves Fisakerly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is going to be a pretty heavy NFL day, but not just that, a pretty heavy quarterback day. The free agent cycle is beginning, and quarterback contracts are being signed, made, extended, franchise tagged. We will talk about all of that today. First, Derek Carr has officially signed with the New Orleans Saints. He visited the Saints back earlier this month. I believe it was the either the first weekend or just the first couple of days of February. Carr was there. And we were led to believe that the visit went well, and clearly it went well enough for him to decide that he wants to play there. So the full details of Carr's contract, it is a four-year deal worth $150 million with $100 million of those dollars guaranteed. The way that that is broken up is he will get a full $60 million guarantee when he signs, $10 million when he starts the third year of the deal, and in the first two years combined, he will get $60 million. Reports have said that the Saints, the Jets, and the Panthers were the final contenders to land Carr. Looking at Carr's statistics from last year, which was his ninth year as a quarterback in the NFL, he had 3,522 passing yards, 24 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, and a completion percentage of 60.8 with a passer rating of 86.3. A lot of those are career lows for Carr. But to be fair, when your organization benches you for a pretty reasonable chunk at the end of the season, you can see why he probably didn't get a chance to improve those numbers, but also the Raiders just did not have a good year. It's not all on Carr. It wasn't pretty on his behalf. 14 interceptions is definitely alarming, but it doesn't all fall on him. Now, the first thing that stands out to me with Car signing for the Saints is the amount that he signed for. I found this to be interesting. So Carr with the Raiders, if he had stayed with them, he would have been owed $40 million guaranteed for this upcoming season. Or if he had gotten traded by the Raiders, he would have been owed $40 million guaranteed from by whatever team that was, assuming that they didn't restructure his contract, given that that's the one that he was signed to in Vegas. The Saints pick up Derek Carr out of free agency and go ahead and sign him to even more guaranteed money. If you're the Saints, it probably would have just been better to trade for Derek Carr because it would have been cheaper. But then again, they didn't really have that choice because Derek Carr refused to waive his no-trade clause. He forced the Raiders' hand. He made them cut him. Now, the Saints were 7-10 and last year. They finished tied for second with everyone else in the division. The Bucs won the division at 8-9, and nine, and then Carolina, New Orleans, and Atlanta all were 7-10. and 10. So the NFC South we know was really bad last year, to put it lightly. Does this move make the Saints contenders? 
Well, I'm not gonna say it makes them contenders, but it definitely puts them in a good position. And the biggest reason for that is because look at their division. The Buccaneers are not looking good at all. Last year was brutal, and now Tom Brady's gone, Leonard Fournette's gone. Still, to this day, Kyle Trask is the only quarterback on that roster, and we've talked before about the concerns that the organization has for Trask. So I don't know what they're going to do. I guess they're waiting for the draft. So you don't have to worry about the Bucks. The Falcons just cut Marcus Mariota. I guess they're going to go with Desmond Ritter at quarterback, but even still... The Falcons had spurts of solid play last year, but nothing to that I would really get excited about right now. And then the Panthers looked terrible, then they looked pretty good, and then they tapered off, and they fired their coach. Yes, they fired Matt Rule at the beginning of the season, had an interim coach come in who was doing really well, or at least with what he had was doing well, but he's gone now too. So I don't know where the Panthers will be. I think this leaves the Saints probably in the best position also because let's just look at the quarterbacks here. The Buccaneers, Kyle Trask. The Panthers, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be Sam Darnold. Maybe it's going to be P.J. Walker. And then the Falcons, probably Desmond Ritter. And the Saints, you now have Derek Carr. And I don't know what they're going to do with Jameis Winston, Andy Dalton, Taysom Hill. I, I assume that Andy Dalton's going to leave. His contract has expired. He will be a free agent. But maybe Jameis and Taysom stay. And Taysom's really more of a... He, he's listed as a tight end on the depth chart, but you know he's the Swiss Army Knife player. Anyways, the point is the best quarterback in the NFC South... This is crazy. I can't believe I'm saying this. The best quarterback in the NFC South is Derek Carr. So that alone... And that's, that's not me trying to slander Derek Carr. It's just that this is a division that most recently had Tom Brady used to have Matt Ryan, used to have Drew Brees, and now the quarterback scape is pretty much barren. Derek Carr is really the only one here. So are the Saints contenders? I still think they have a lot of things to work out. Michael Thomas's contract is also a question. In the summer of 2019, Thomas signed a five-year contract extension, so this upcoming year is going to be the last one on that contract. But regardless, regardless, my very early prediction is that the Saints will win this division this year. What that record is, probably something like a 10 and 7. And maybe they win the wild card game. But I don't know. I don't have super high expectations for the Saints this year, other than right now you look to be the best team in your division. So you should probably win it. Geno Smith signed a three year deal in Seattle. The deal is worth a total of 105 million dollars and in the first year he will earn 52 million last year smith led the league in completion percentage with 69.8 percent was sixth in total qbr at 60.8 and was fourth in touchdown passes with 30 this is good for seattle and this is good for geno smith last year was i think you could say a rebirth for his career he was 32 years old, started in the Jets, went to the Giants, bounced around the league a little bit, finally landed in Seattle, and the Seahawks had little to no expectations this year because of the Russell Wilson trade. Most everybody thought that the Broncos would be 
AFC West contenders, playoff performers, and the Seahawks would be left in the dust. But, I mean, the complete opposite happened. The Broncos had an awful year, and the Seahawks made the playoffs. They finished second in their division. They finished behind the 49ers, who are really good, and made the playoffs. The Seahawks keep a quarterback who's been in their system, who they like, who fans like, who has proven he can perform. Probably the biggest concern would just be interceptions because as the season progressed, Smith started throwing more and more. In his last seven games, he threw seven of his total 11 interceptions on the year. So that is a concern worth noting. But Smith has admitted that he was trying to do too much. So over the offseason, he and Pete Carroll, he and the offensive coordinator, they can work things out. That's probably the only thing I would be worried about. We spoke not that long ago about whether Geno Smith would come back or not. I had a feeling that he would. I said the Seahawks should bring him back, and they did. General manager had made it public that he was very comfortable in where they were in talks with Geno Smith, and he looks to be right. Or he obviously was right. He signed. He came back. The biggest thing for the Seahawks that I want to watch this offseason is who they're drafting with that fifth overall pick. General manager said that the Seahawks will still consider picking a quarterback with that fifth overall pick because the Seahawks, they haven't picked this early since 2009, and this is a pretty loaded quarterback class. Management likes this class. I mean, it's loaded. We have Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Hendon Hooker, Anthony Richardson, Will Levis. So who will the Seahawks pick to be behind and learn from Geno Smith? That is what I want to know, and that is what we shall find out early next month. Let's go up to Manhattan. Daniel Jones has signed a four-year deal with the New York Giants, while Saquon Barkley has been franchise tagged. So Jones's deal is four years worth $160 million, and he gets $82 million guaranteed at the signing. Saquon Barkley, under the franchise tag, is going to make $10 million next year. So if I were the Giants, I would have done this the other way. I would have this year gone ahead and signed Saquon Barkley and franchise tag Daniel Jones, and then next year have been able to work out a deal with Daniel Jones. But effectively, this is the same thing. They just did it the other way. I see what the Giants are doing. They're locking up their quarterback now because the Giants have not had a stable quarterback since Eli Manning left. So they're trying to get that figured out. And then, yes, they obviously want to keep Saquon Barkley. He's one of the best running backs in the league. But they're going to push that into next season. Now, the reason I would have signed Saquon this year is because of that reason. He is one of the best running backs in the league. You want to do everything that you can to make him happy. You want to do everything that you can to make sure he wants to stay in New York and wants to stay a giant. So you cater to him, cater to your superstar, and we're all good. Saquon's probably going to have another amazing year next year. History has a tendency of repeating itself. Players usually play well in contract years. Thus, they earn a loftier payout. I just would have signed Saquon this year so you could guarantee that you keep him and you probably could have gotten him for less. 
Daniel Jones by franchising ta- by franchise tagging him this year. You could have pushed that decision later on to next year. One, maybe another quarterback pops up that you like. But two, and really more importantly, it's simply just, I think Saquon's the more important piece. But like I said, effectively what they've done here is just switch that. They wanted to lock up their quarterback now, and they'll deal with their running back situation next year. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. It's just the way that I saw it, it would have prioritized Saquon's deal. One of the reasons why they may have opted to do this is because of Saquon's health. Three years in a row, he has missed games due to an ACL tear in his right knee, 2019, 2020, and 2021. Meanwhile, Jones had probably the best year of his career last year. He threw for 3,205 yards, 15 touchdowns, five interceptions, and ran for 708 yards and totaled seven touchdowns on the ground. Speaking of the franchise tag, Lamar Jackson has been franchise tagged by the Baltimore Ravens. This is huge. The franchise tag will pay Lamar $32 million this upcoming season, and of course, it's one year. The thing that has been making this so difficult is the pay. Lamar wants a huge guaranteed deal, which is reportedly north of $250 million. Deshaun Watson set the market. When the Browns gave him $250 million, all guaranteed, they changed the quarterback market. They shot it up. And Lamar has been asking for that type of pay, which the Ravens have been reluctant to give him. I can see both sides of the story here. Lamar's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. In my opinion, he brought the running quarterback back into the mainstream, and he deserves to get paid a lot of money because he is one of the best. Now, I can also see the Ravens' point of view of, one, injuries are pretty extensive in Lamar's track record. He just missed a pretty substantial chunk this past year and the year before that. Also, the goal is to win a Super Bowl, and Lamar currently has a 1-3 in record in the playoffs. That is not solely his fault. It's a team game, but nonetheless, that does hang over his head. I don't think that this tag is going to resolve anything. I think, if anything, this is going to make matters so much worse. But yes, Lamar gets another year in Baltimore. He gets $32 million this year, but what he wanted was $250 plus guaranteed over a over X amount of years. Now, Yes, you don't yes, you don't always get what you want, but for a franchise player like Lamar Jackson, it's important that the Ravens handle this delicately and handle it the right way. Where I thought we were was we're either going to sign Lamar or we're going to trade him. They opted to do neither of those. They franchise tagged him. I don't think this is going to make him very happy at all because now he's in Baltimore for another year. And another year is going to go by where he's not going to have his contract situation figured out. Now, yes, from a managerial perspective, he is your best player. So you want to do everything that you can to keep him. If you can't come to a decision this year, the franchise tag is an option. You franchise tag him. That is theoretically smart. However, since this relationship is already at the boiling point and we're already seeing a difference in wants, a difference in needs, a difference in opinion. I don't think this was the right decision to do that. I think you just needed to either bite the bullet and pay him or bite the bullet and move on. 
To use a metaphor, I feel like the Ravens franchise tagging Lamar right now is putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. Lamar Jackson is the Baltimore Ravens offense. Without Lamar Jackson, the offense cannot function. Without an offense, it doesn't matter how good your defense is, you can't score points, and you need to score points to win a football game, obviously. The Ravens needed to either accept that fact and pay him or trade him and just build from the ground up all over again. This franchise tag, which they're basically using as a bridge deal, I don't think this will, in the long run, favor the Ravens. Now, last but certainly not least, in the quarterback department, the Jets are in talks with the Green Bay Packers about acquiring Aaron Rodgers. Now, it's unclear as to whether a trade or a deal was actually made. Nothing is official. Aaron Rodgers hasn't said anything, which is surprising. But we still don't know what Aaron's thinking. Is he going to stay in Green Bay? Is he going to retire? Is he going to want to leave? Is he even going to want to go to the Jets if he leaves? But the Jets are what I would call a realistic option. We've seen this. We've seen them pop up in conversation pretty much all year, and especially during the offseason. And this just further confirms that and adds to the narrative that the Jets may be the number one contender or at least a top contender in terms of acquiring Aaron Rodgers. Now, reportedly, the Jets were interested in Derek Carr and had met with him twice, but now that he is in New Orleans, he's obviously off the table. But the Jets have said that Rodgers is their number one priority, at least of those two. Now, let's just play a little hypothetical here. If Aaron Rodgers does go to the Jets, I'm not saying the Jets are going to win a Super Bowl, but they're definitely going to be in a really good position because their defense is easily one of the best in the league. The run game was exceptional last year, at least before a tragic injury, but it will heal. And their line is effective. The Jets have the pieces to be a contending team. They have the pieces to be successful. They have the pieces to win, except a quarterback. Zach Wilson is not the guy. Mike White can do a little, but he's not QB1. If you pull in a guy like Aaron Rodgers, I'm not saying you're going to win the Super Bowl, but you got a pretty good shot and you will almost most definitely make the playoffs. Let's just put it like this. It would be a massive letdown and disappointment if you pulled in a guy like Aaron Rodgers and then missed the playoffs. Not just because of Aaron Rodgers, but because of the roster that you have already and then putting Aaron Rodgers in it. So a Jets team with Aaron Rodgers, I think that would definitively put you as the second best team in the AFC East. I think the Bills would still be the best. The Patriots, I just... I don't know. There's nothing to get excited about with the Patriots right now, especially after last year. Now, they actually did hire a legitimate offensive coordinator this year, so let's hope that they can get back on their feet. And I hope that Mac Jones has a good year just for his sake. But I still would probably say they'd be the worst team in that division. The Dolphins, if Tua can actually be healthy, they might be fine. But, oh, man, that is a scary situation to deal with. But even assuming Tua is healthy and can play, I would still pick a Jets team with Aaron Rodgers over them. The Jets played well last year. They just had a lot of bad decisions at quarterback. They won games, but they also lost a lot of games that they should have won. So I would think the Jets could be second in the AFC East, get a wild card spot, and then maybe go on a tear. I am getting ahead of myself. Like I said, we still have no idea what is happening. We don't know if there was a deal made. Nothing's official. 
And shockingly, Aaron Rodgers hasn't said anything about all of this yet. But only time will tell. Dog of the day. You might not like this one because it's not going to be one person. It's going to be a group of people. The dog on the, the dog of the day is the Boston Bruins. That might not be fair. It's a whole team. But hear me out. Now, Boston, on March 2nd, they improved to a record of 48-8-5. So in 61 games played, they hit 100 points. That beats the record that the Montreal Canadiens set for fastest team to 100 points from 1976. So the Bruins, by hitting 100 points in 61 games, beat a record set by rival the rival Canadians of 100 points in 62 games almost 50 years later. The Bruins have played one game since then, and they won it. They are now 49-8-5, first in the league by a long shot. The Bruins are clear favorites to win the President's Trophy. I don't think anyone will catch them in the regular season. And I'm always hesitant to pick the President's Trophy winner to win the Stanley Cup. I'm not saying I believe in the President's Trophy curse, but let's just say the President's Trophy winner doesn't win it as much as you would think that they do. But this Bruins team, I mean, they're scary. They're just built. They still have Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak. They've had them for years, and they're just as dangerous now as they have ever been. David Pasternak has 84 points on the year. He's second in the league for goals scored with 44. Hampus Lindholm, Matt Greslick, Brendan Carlo, all three of them are in the top five for plus minus with 41, 35, and 32 respectively. Linus Julemark is the best goalie in terms of goals against with 189, and then Swayman is third with 227. Olmark has the best save percentage in the league at 938. He has the most wins in the league with 32. This team is built. They are dangerous. They are scary. I think they are favorites to win the Stanley Cup. I think they will win the Presidents and the Stanley Cup. It's so hard to pick against the Bruins. They're 49-8-5. That is an insane record. That is monstrous. And for that, I just got to say, this whole team, they're the, dogs, they're the dogs of the day. And if you really, really want me to pick one player, we'll say Linus Yolmark just because of all of those stats that I just read off. That dude is having an insane year along with everyone else on his team. That's going to do it for this installment of the Dogs on the Hill podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope to have you back next time.